Thank you, team, for leading us. Let you take your Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 2, as well, I get situated here. Matthew chapter 2. If you're there, just say I'm there. There, okay. I just want to encourage you, church. Uh, someone just a couple of weeks ago who was preaching, the late, great Pastor Kyle, who we miss. Uh, if you're not, he's, he's still alive. Sorry. <laughs> he's just not here. Uh, if you haven't been tracking with us as a church family, uh, Pastor Kyle and Stephanie transitioned to Lively to lead a church there. They're doing well. And um, he said something that struck me in that last message that he preached, or one of, one of the last. He said, um, he said this. He said, observation requires less of us than participation. But observation does not, is not there's no blessing in observation the, the way there is in participation. Isn't that true? And at some point in our lives, we kind of get tired of the observation and we want to participate because there's a richness in that. And, and as a church family, I want to encourage you again that Every time we have an opportunity to open our mouths and to pour out our praise, as that song said, would you choose participation over observation? And I wasn't looking around. I'm not directing this at anyone. But I'm just thinking as we're worshiping God, Lord, that there's something about we can observe and we can kind of, kind of you know, see what's happening around us. And we can perhaps make judgments about, well, that person shouldn't be raising their hands. You don't know what they struggle with or whatever might be going through our minds. But can I encourage you to choose participation when we have an opportunity to pour out our praise? May we never let an opportunity go, but that we would say, God, you're worthy of our praise. And I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to bless you because you're worthy of my praise. And I'm not going to choose observation today. I'm going to choose participation. And I'm actually going to honor God with my words. I'm going I'm to just pour out my heart to him in praise. And church, let's continue Every opportunity we have to worship in that way, let's continue with all sincerity to honor and to worship God. Would you join with me in just that heart? I know that's your heart as a church. And, and so again, I hope this isn't coming off as a lecture. It's just something that's stirring in me. May we just get tired of observation and may we begin to step into the blessing of participation, whether that's here or other areas of our lives as we, as we follow Jesus. Let's enjoy the richness that comes from participation. Before I forget, I want to thank uh, Alice and her team for decorating. Um, I think, uh, yeah, we can give them a hand. You know, I know I'm totally biased, but I think we have the best decorated church in our prior. I haven't seen anyone else's decorations. I'm just saying that. But um, it, it's just, um, it's tastefully done, and it uh, just adds to the beauty of the season, and we're thankful for those that, uh, that help with that. Before we get to our scripture in Matthew chapter 2, I, I heard a story this week, and I want to just share it with you. It was about a teacher 
who uh, around this time of year, she wanted to just um, uh, kind of reinforce the idea of kindness and generosity. Because at Christmas, we give each other gifts and we take time to uh, pick something out that's going to be meaningful to those that we love and those around us. And, and so we practice kindness and generosity at Christmas time. And so she brought two apples to her classroom that particular day. One apple was large and it was shiny and it just looked delicious. The other apple didn't look too bad, but it was just a small apple. And so she brought these two apples to class this day and And she picked out a young boy in her class, and she gave those two apples to that little guy. And there he stood holding them, and she asked um, him this question. She said, if your brother comes up to you and asks you for an apple, which one are you going to give him? And so her hope was that he would be generous, right? That he would be kind, and he would give his brother the big apple. But this little guy, his mind was really clicking through this question, and he was considering it. And, and he thought for a moment, and then he said to his teacher, he said, he said teacher, uh, which brother are you talking about, my younger one or my older one? <laughs> you could see a bit of the dilemma. He wanted the big apple. Now, if his younger brother happened to come and ask for an apple, and he was holding those two, I think his thought probably was, I'm going to give my little brother the little apple because I just want the big apple, right? He's, he's thinking about how delicious it looked. But if my big brother comes, he's probably thinking more along the lines of his safety than generosity, I'm probably going to give the big apple to my brother. You know, we know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He was thinking about his stomach and he was thinking about his safety. And there was a bit of a dilemma there. What would he do? But his teacher was trying to reinforce this point of we are to live lives that are selfless. There's something powerful about generosity. About when you have a big apple and you have a small apple and someone is in need, perhaps you and I in different circumstances would go through the same dilemma. Do I give them uh, my best or do I just give them enough to kind of get them through? What will I do in this situation? And so this morning as we come to this, um, we've been looking at different dilemmas that Jesus came to address and we looked at the dilemma of distance, how we could not traverse the distance that sin brought between us and God, but Jesus could, and so he came. We looked at the dilemma of our legacy and how a legacy can be a wonderful thing and a, and a painful thing, and how Jesus came to deal with uh, generational things, that a past that we can break free of, and he came for all of us. And then today we look at the dilemma of self, perhaps illustrated in that little story, where we can be taught generosity, we can be taught what it means to live a selfless life, but But when it comes down to it, as adults, no matter what stage we're in, we realize that there are still moments when we struggle with self. And and sometimes that relates to our relationship with God. And it kind of looks like this, God, your will or my will? God, your way or my way? God's your path or my path? And, And be very clear this morning that you are loved and valued by God. This is not about denigrating who you are and how God has made you, not at all. We need to start from the basis of understanding you've been given life because God loves you and he has some things that he wants to use you in life to glorify him, to bring glory to him and to enjoy life as he intended it. But we all know that there are moments when that struggle ensues within us, my way or God's way. And I believe that Jesus came to help us as humanity to deal with this dilemma of self because we have this tendency to to live a life that is really revolved around me and around my wants and around my desires. How many of you know that the 
dominant message of our culture is me, right? It really is. I need to create my own um, meaning. I, I need to kind of self-actualize. I need to make sure that every tool is at my disposal so that I have the best life that I can have so that every desire that I want can be fulfilled. I don't have to leave anything behind. I can have it all. And so there's, there's something that we need to keep pressing against, and that is this tendency in us to live life for self instead of for God and for others. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. And here we find a study in contrast. Here we find two responses to the coming of Jesus. And there's this king named Herod, and then there's a group of guys who we call the wise men. And we're going to take time to just read this. Matthew chapter 2. I'll read from verse 1 down to 12, and then verse 16. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country along another route, down to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I just want to pause and ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning through his word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're the spirit of truth, you're the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I ask that uh, you would speak to us so clearly as, as we look into your word today. We pray that you would speak to us spirit to spirit and that what only you can accomplish and what only your word can accomplish, may it be so in our hearts today. God, for your glory, that we would live lives that are wholeheartedly surrendered to you. We would know the joy of serving you in that way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Anyone see a contrast here? Of course you do. Here we find that there's this message that Jesus has arrived And and there's a a contrast here in the response of a man named Herod, who was a king. And 
Herod very much responded in the my way type of response to this news that Jesus had come. And so he began uh, to, he felt threatened by Jesus. He heard that there was another ruler of sorts who was coming. This threatened his position. He must have thought to himself, if this ruler is allowed to grow up and to begin to rule, then probably what that means for me is that my position is done. I'm no longer in power. I will lose my authority and my position. And so Herod began to really worry about this. What should I do about this situation? Who is this Jesus? And so he calls together uh, the wise men and he says to them, you know, I want you go on this mission. I want you to find the baby Jesus that scripture has revealed to us. This is the Messiah that's come. And then I want to worship him too, so let me know where he is. And we know that that was the furthest thing from his heart. He had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He had no intention of surrendering his life to the rulership of this new ruler that he had heard about. In fact, he had every intention of of making sure whatever it took, that what he wanted was going to continue. And that was, he wanted to continue in his position of power, and he was threatened. So Herod was fearful and insecure. He was driven by this need to maintain power. He, he worshipped power and self-interest. And, and so really what he did is he said, I want to, to find Jesus in order to eliminate him. What a, what a response to Jesus. All right, Jesus, you've come. Well, I'm going to take you out. <laughs> you, I'm not, you're not going to rule. You're not going to have any authority if I have anything to say about it. Because I have some self-interest that I'm going to make sure I see through to their conclusion. Herod responded in a way that really much is my will. It's that type of response. You know, when we encounter Jesus, every one of us has an opportunity to respond to him. And and sometimes the struggle is, will I dethrone self as the focus of my life and enthrone Jesus? Or will I choose to dethrone Jesus and keep self as the, as, as the top priority in my life? What, what is the direction that I'm going to choose my life to go? And, and Herod was faced with this decision. He may not have understood everything about what Jesus came to do, but he simply began to respond out of that place that said capital S-E-L-F, self. And that's a struggle, a very real struggle that every one of us face at different times. And then we find this contrast where there's another group of men And they sought out Jesus to worship him. They were so incredibly overjoyed that finally the one who God said he was going to send had come. That was good news. God had said he was going to send someone to humanity that would change things forever, that would would come as a ruler and lead his people in the ways of God. And so these wise men, when they heard the news of Jesus, they accepted it. And in fact, they said, we got to go see. We need to go and worship There's a ruler that has come, someone sent from God. We've heard about this moment for so long. And they were just overjoyed to go and to to kneel down and to find Jesus and, and to worship him. What a very different response. This was just what the world needed. You know, these were grown men, as was Herod. These were learned men. These were men well-respected in their time, but they were not not so proud that they didn't want to find Jesus and surrender to him to lay down uh, their gifts before him and to say, Jesus, I recognize you as a ruler that has come, sent from God, and I'm willing to set aside self 
and then to allow you to be the ruler that you've come to be in my life. You know, this idea of surrendering ourselves to another is so foreign in our culture, and I mentioned already that our culture is really a culture of self. Uh, The wise men came and worshipped Jesus. You know, what is worship? Worship can take a long time to unpack it, but in its simplicity, worship is really an act of giving up control. It's, it's kind of tied to this word surrender. And when you worship uh, someone, then you're really surrendering to them. You're acknowledging that they hold a place that is very important. And there's this idea that the, the wise men came and they surrendered to Jesus. They worshiped him. They were willing to place Jesus ahead of self. And it's a powerful image when you think of these grown men kneeling with gifts in hand before Jesus. And Scripture says they worshipped. They recognized the authority of Jesus. They recognized who he was. And they said, I'm going to prostrate myself and I'm going to elevate Jesus to the place that he deserves in my life. Marty Bullis says this. He says, in looking at that image, we see here in this act of kneeling, the manifestation of souls surrendered. Their pilgrimage, their lavish gifts, the prostration of their bodies show the great heights a human soul attains when it has found that one thing worthy of losing itself to. What is that one thing that is worthy of you losing yourself to? I want to just suggest to you this morning again that the wise men understood something profound that is still true today, and that is that Jesus is worth losing yourself to. Jesus is worth surrendering your life to. Jesus is worth giving your all for. Jesus is worthy of your worship. A couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago now, on a Christmas Eve, at the end of that candlelight service that we have every year, there was a lady that was there. I had never seen her before. And she came up to me at the end of that service and she gave me a Christmas card. And so later that night, I went home and I opened it. And on the front, it simply said this, wise men still seek him. And it was something that just resonated with me again. Not a, not a new phrase. You've heard that before. But there was something about it in that moment where I felt as though it was just a reminder to God to say to me, Clark, just keep seeking me. Just keep, keep pursuing me. And wise men still seek Jesus. Wise men are still, wise people are still those that come and recognize that Jesus, I surrender my life to you. And instead of enthroning self, I'm going to enthrone you because I want my life to serve you. I want my life to honor you. I want your path for my life, not a life of self that revolves around my desires, my wants, my needs. And so Jesus is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your worship. There is no one else that is worthy of you bringing your heart and surrendering your heart to them besides Jesus. You know, it's important to note as we look at this contrast between Herod and the wise men, it's important to note that they, they were both worshipers. You realize that today? that Herod worshipped self and the wise men chose to worship Jesus. And, and there's something about this word worship that it, it always is connected to God because we were created to worship. We were created to come into relationship with the one that created us and then enjoy the relationship that he offers us and come and just 
Say, God, we worship you because you're worthy. So worship is always God-directed. You can't kind of separate the word, uh, the word worship from the word uh, God. Those two things are inseparable. And so Herod really was worshiping self, but we have to replace that word with another word because it's no longer worship in the true sense of the word. What Herod did is he began to idolize. You see, anything that we worship apart from God can't really be called worship in the true sense. It just simply becomes idolatry because worship, the only thing that's worthy of worship in our lives is God. He has created us. He's worthy of worship. And so anytime we begin to worship, quote unquote, something else in our lives, then really that word worship no longer applies. It's actually idolatry. And scripture talks about how there's this temptation in us to begin to place other things and and begin to place emphasis on things in our lives in a way that begins to diminish God's uh, authority in us and begins to, to misplace our heart affections. And that's simply called idolatry. And I believe that when we look at Herod's response to Jesus, that he had made an idol of self and more specifically of his power and of his position. And he was willing to do anything to keep self at the focus of his life. This thought of surrendering to Jesus and the rulership that Jesus was to bring was a thought that Herod would not bear, he would not stand for. And so he began to take steps to eliminate Jesus. And so anytime we we worship something else, it's actually called idolatry. Because worship is only appropriate when it's Godward directed. Worship has to do with God. As creation of God, and we worship the one that has created us. So what is an idol? What is an idol? An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy or fulfilled or secure. We begin to think about this. What are some things in my life that perhaps have begun to just get out of whack within me? So an idol is something other than God that we begin to set our hearts on. Something that we love and we pursue more than we love and we pursue God. And so an idol can really be anything that begins to take that place in our lives. It can be anything that's not in its rightful place in our hearts. And so what we do is we begin to take uh, whatever that might be. It might be a relationship. It might be um, a desire. It might be material things. It might be a position. It might be a reputation. You can, you can name whatever it is, perhaps, that is your struggle. And what we begin to do is we begin to elevate it to a place above other things. and In fact, to a place where we begin to look to it whatever that thing is, for our sense of fulfillment, more than we look to God, the one that has created us and has given us life and knows what we need. We begin to elevate it to a place that we begin to look for fulfillment there. You know, someone said that anything in our lives can be hammered and fashioned into an idol if it is misplaced at the top place in our hearts. Anything can And instead of giving ourselves to God, we begin to give ourselves to that idol. We begin to lose our life to it in the sense that we attach our sense of well-being and our sense of happiness to it. And so we begin to make strong ties, connections in our heart between whatever that idol is and our sense of fulfillment. And, And our thinking begins to go along these lines. If I don't have it, I will not be fulfilled. If that desire isn't fulfilled in me, then I will not be fulfilled as a person in this life that I have to live. And we begin to misplace our heart affections on whatever that thing might be. And all of a sudden, we are beginning to put self, self self-desires in a place where only God 
should have in our hearts. And so what happens is it begins to have a disproportionate place of importance in our hearts. I'm sure you've been to the circus at some point and you've walked through the, the house of mirrors and you've, you've had fun, right? Just standing in front of different mirrors and, and what happens is different parts of your body become disproportionately big or disproportionately small. And it's kind of humorous. But can you imagine if that actually started to happen with your physical body? Where, you know, your arm became so big that it started to drag on the ground and that, you know, you were dragging this 50-pound weight along. It wouldn't be so funny anymore, would it? It's disproportionate. It, it actually kind of becomes ugly in some senses. And that's what happens when we begin to place anything above that place of worshiping God in our hearts. When we begin to place anything above that, when it becomes disproportionate in terms of our heart affection, it actually begins to become a place of bondage for us. It isn't, it isn't as fulfilling as we thought it would be. It becomes this weight for us where we thought, unless I get this, I will not be fulfilled. And how many of you know that sometimes when you actually get there, there's a letdown? Because you've attached your sense of worth, your sense of well-being, your sense of fulfillment to whatever that is. And when you get there, all of a sudden there's this disappointment. And what that thing has become is it's become disproportionate in how much uh, time and energy and thought that it is required of you. It becomes this weight that you have to drag around. And so an idol is, is something that begins to take that disproportionate place in our hearts. Now I want to just mentioned this morning that God is not a cosmic killjoy, right? There are many things that God wants us to enjoy. And sometimes we're afraid, we're worried like Herod worried. If I really surrender my life completely to Jesus, if I kind of really am all in, does that mean that I will never enjoy the things that are in my heart any longer? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that you can enjoy them in their rightful place. You can enjoy them in their rightful place place. This is such an important thought that when we truly put God first in our lives, it actually frees us up to enjoy the other blessings of life in their proper place. There's a spiritual sequence that's vitally important. Jesus said uh, uh, said this to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God first. Seek his righteousness in your life. Seek his presence in your life. See God first, and then all of these other things will fall into place in their rightful place. There's a spiritual sequence that's so important. How many of you have tried to put something together and you've thrown out the instructions and you've got it mostly together and you realize there's one little piece that is vital to that functioning of that item, and man, you've got to tear it all apart and start over because it needed to go first, right? It's not going to work without it in there. It's not going to work if it's not put in first. And there's something about the way that we're wired and the way God's created us that when we put God first, then all of those other things can be enjoyed freely in their proper place in our hearts. But sometimes that begins to become disproportionate. And instead of enjoying them, we become trapped to them. We become a slave to those things that we thought we needed in order to be fulfilled. They are no longer in their proper place. God first And everything falls into place behind our desire for him. You know, I I was thinking about how do we how do we just really understand this in a in a simple way? And I think there's a perspective that that will help us to understand this. And and it's simply in this phrase, you know, live life with open hands. Live live your life 
as you walk through life with all of his blessings, with all of his challenges, with all of his disappointments, that if we choose to live life with open hands, then I believe we can find the blessings in life that God intends for us. What did the wise men do? They came to Jesus with open hands and they came with precious things in their hands and they surrendered those things to Jesus as an act of worship. And, you know, they could have said, there's no way I'm giving up my gold for Jesus. No way. You know, I, I might give him a pot of gold, some chocolates or something. You know, but I'm not really giving him something of true value or true worth. And, and we can tend to hang on to things. And, and instead of those things being a blessing in our lives, they become a weight that we gather around us. Weights that begin to just weigh us down because they're out of place. We can't enjoy something f- fully and, and in a pure way if it has taken the place of God in our hearts. We just can't. But as we surrender those things to Jesus, as we live life with open hands then we can enjoy those things in their rightful place. They can be a place of, of enjoyment for us. They can be delights of our hearts. I was thinking about you know, my own uh, interests, and, and one of the things that I really enjoy is photography. And, and um, you know, a- anything can start to become disproportionate in, your, uh, in the time it takes, in uh, the, the money that it takes. Um, and so I just realized that I can have a tendency to kind of overdo it sometimes, right, where... Oh, yeah, there's a good lens. We kind of have a need over here, but, boy, that'd be a nice lens to have in my, in my kid. And so, yeah, I'll spend money there where uh, I'll kind of, you know, not want to spend it here. Any, any of you there looking at me with blank stares? I'm worried. Um, and I was just thinking about how even with something as simple as that, how I need to just enjoy that, that blessing of photography that I just enjoy, I truly do. I need to enjoy it with open hands. And, and so what that looks like for me, I guess, is when you live life in an open-handed way, it means that you can set that aside for a time, right? It's okay. If there's a season where God asks you to lay something aside and it's good, it's nothing wrong, but if you live a life with an open hand, you're free to do that. It's not, you haven't tied your sense of worth to it. You haven't tied your sense of fulfillment to it. So living life with an open hand really gives you an immense amount of freedom. In fact, you can, you can actually you know, give that away, right? By the way, that camera doesn't work. <laughs> That's not the one I use. There's the self-illustration, right? I didn't want you to lose sight of that. Um, I was just thinking about how if we live life with open hands, it, it really frees us right? To actually enjoy those things. And if God asks us to set them aside for a moment or, or if he asks us to give some of our, our hard-earned money to a need and he's prompting us to do that, if, if we're living life with a clenched fist, then we're not actually going to enjoy that thing the way that we, we truly could. Now, I want to just encourage you today that when we think of this idea of idolatry and, and how things can just in small ways begin to creep into our, our hearts that that we would just say, God, help me to live life with an open hand because as I do, as I surrender every aspect of my life to you and, and as you prompt me in those areas, then it hasn't become an idol. It's not something that I refuse to let go of. And perhaps you know, one of the litmus tests is whether or not something has become an idol in your heart is, is simply, would you be willing to lay it down? Would you be willing to set it down and just take a break or two? Um, to be obedient if God's calling you to put your energy in a different direction. The things that we refuse to let go of probably have become an idol in our hearts. And so live life with an open hand. An open hand is a, is a 
posture of surrender where God, here is my life. Here is all of my interests. Here's all of my dreams. Here's all of my desires. But my hands are open and I give them to you. And the dreams that you want to be fulfilled in my life, you will help them to come to pass. The dreams that perhaps aren't part of your plan, I'm willing to lay them before you. I'm, I'm living my life with an open hand and I'm surrendering my life to you. And in doing that, there's a tremendous amount of freedom to live life in the way that God calls you to, to find true fulfillment. And so live life with open hands. How do idols begin to form in our hearts? I just want to share with you four quick things, and we won't be much longer, but Ken Sandy writes a a book about how to resolve conflict in our our lives, and he he begins to talk about this subject of idols, and and how does an idol really begin in our hearts? And he, he just looks at four things, and we'll just walk through them quickly, but I believe this is something that is so important to us in our walk with God to identify these things and lay them down before God. And so it really begins with this statement, I desire. And so remember, not all desires are wrong. Not all desires are desires that God will even ask you to give up. Some he may, some maybe just aren't part of the plan that God has for your life, but it begins with this part in our hearts that says, I desire. Some desires are wrong, desires for revenge and, and things like lust and greed, those are, those are clearly wrong. But most of us have good desires. We want to enjoy the blessings of life. We, we want fulfilling relationships. We want to be able to accomplish meaningful things with the life that God has given us. We want a healthy marriage. We want a good relationship with our children. Those are good desires. They really are. But sometimes the question is what happens when our desires are not met? Well, when a desire isn't met, if it's a good, healthy desire, there's a sense of disappointment, and that's natural. There might even be a sense of loss and perhaps a grieving process that that we need to walk through when one of our good desires in life just doesn't seem to be happening for us. And perhaps there's a grieving process that you've had to walk through in, in surrendering that to God and saying, God, that may never happen in my life, and I grieve the loss of that because I believe it was a good desire, but but God, I'm willing to surrender that to you. So there may be some legitimate grieving that happens in that process of laying that thing down before God. And we look to the Lord for comfort and strength. We struggle with the question, why? God, why? But we look to him in those moments. But sometimes a desire becomes a demand, and this is when it begins to form a place in our hearts where it should not be. When a desire becomes a demand, it it means that even though that thing may not be wrong in and of itself, that it has worked its way into a deeper place in our hearts, and this is when the damage begins. When a desire that may not be wrong becomes a demand, and and we begin to think that unless I get that, then I'm not going to be fulfilled. And, And perhaps... In our disappointment, we start to indulge in self-pity and and maybe even a little root of bitterness begins to grow in our hearts and we begin to harbor bitterness because that desire has really been a demand and it's not being met. We We must have it in order to be happy or fulfilled. And so when that desire is given a place in our hearts that is now out of proportion, it is beginning to be elevated in our hearts to a place where it shouldn't be. 
And everything begins to point in the direction of that demand. It, it begins to consume our thoughts. It begins to consume our finances. It begins uh, to consume our hearts because it's become a demand. And, and the more we want and demand something, the more we think we need and deserve it. The more we think we're entitled to it, the more we become convinced that we cannot be happy without it. And really a demand is summed up in that phrase, I must have this, I must have this. I must have it or I will not be happy in life. And that's where a good desire can become a demand and it begins to get set up in our hearts as an idol. You know, there's so many things that we can idolize and we can begin to demand. You know, perhaps it's comfort. Perhaps it's a certain level of material wealth. Perhaps it's a relationship and how we feel that relationship should look. And again, there are good desires for our relationships, but if we begin to become so focused on what needs to change that that becomes enthroned in our hearts instead of God, then it's, it's just simply out of, it's out of whack. And God wants to bring it back into line. When a desire becomes a demand, it begins to harm our relationships. It draws us away from God. And then the next step in this progression is I judge. We begin to blame God or we begin to blame others when they fail to meet our demands when they fail to meet our expectations as to what we're looking to them for, if we're looking to our husband or to our wife for fulfillment and they're not meeting that, they're not meeting that in some way, we can begin to judge them. You are not making my life the way I want it to look. And that's a demand. And I'm going to begin to judge you if you don't meet the needs that I have in my life the way that I think you should. We begin to judge. Demands must be met and if people around us are not meeting them, then it's very quickly a place where we can go in our thinking, I judge. And then finally, we come to this part of this progression is I punish. When someone fails to satisfy our demands and our expectation, then that place in us demands that they must suffer in some way. That they must suffer. And this is where anger and hurtful words become part of Uh, what we do to punish those around us who aren't meeting our requirements. And I'm so thankful, so thankful that Jesus came to deal with those moments in our lives. I'm so thankful that Jesus came. And if there are things in our hearts today that we're beginning to identify that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about and he's saying to us, you know, that, that good desire in your heart has actually become an idol, a place of, of idolatry where it is more important to you than anything else. In fact, it's more important to you than finding your fulfillment in me. Then, oh, may God give us the courage to lay that down before him and to live life with an open hand and to say, God, would you forgive me for that? And I look to you for my fulfillment. I look to my relationship with you as the basis of, of, of life and of, of goodness. And, and in spite of difficult circumstances, I will not make my demands an idol in my life any longer. And I believe that God can just bring us to places where we're free from that, where we can lay those things down. And even in the midst of difficult circumstances, those things are in their rightful place now. That our desire is first and foremost toward God. Jesus came to deal with the dilemma of self. 
And know this morning that we would be like those wise men, that we would say, Jesus, I choose to worship you, that I choose to enthrone you above my desires, above my wants, above what I think I need in order to live a fulfilled life. And I will surrender those things to you and allow you to begin to shape them. I want them to stay in their rightful place. And I want to enthrone you as the Lord of my life. I wonder if we could stand this morning. And Yeshua, would you come back and uh, just for a few moments? I know this hasn't been a, you know, a light kind of fluffy Christmas message. But oh, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to begin to give us freedom in places in our lives where we're not free. In places in our lives where we, we think we know what's best, but we need to simply allow those things to be in their rightful place with the Lord. I'm so thankful that Jesus came without, a, without condemnation, but he came to rule our hearts. He came to set us free inwardly. And so this morning, as we take a moment just to respond, I'm just going to ask Yeshua just to lead us in a song. And I'm not sure if you have something, maybe something we've already sung. And would you just take a moment to say, Lord, if there's anything in my life that has become an idol, would you just help me to see that? And then would you forgive me for that? And help me to surrender that thing to you. Because I want it to come back into its rightful place. I really do. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to be able to worship you with an abandon, with everything, every aspect of my life. God, I want to say that, that I, I, I enthrone you in those places. And then I want to be free just to walk with you in, in the places of intimacy that you desire for me. So let's take a moment, church, as Yeshua leads us in a song, and then we're going to pray. We're going to dismiss. And I trust that the Lord is speaking to us today and that in some way that we will be freer when we leave than when we came in. We will have given Jesus the rightful place in our lives again.